if you are in a successful king's court, to use a modern lingo, if you are in his entourage, how would you expect to be treated? Well, you might not be a trickle-down economist, but if, this, if you were in this situation, you would expect some of the king's success to trickle down to you. If the king lived in a palace and you were in his entourage, you'd expect to at least get a room in that palace. If the king had fancy robes, you would expect to at least get decently nice clothes. Uh, if the king gets the best food, then you would expect to at least get some leftovers from that food. Well, if you worked there, then you would at least expect to get some of the best benefits that you can. You would, ex you would expect to get a good deal. And all this is just common sense, right? We know this in everyday life. If the company you work for or the person who's responsible for you is successful, you would expect some of their success to trickle down to you. Especially if they said they would care for you. Well, throughout the Bible, there is example after example of God's servants enduring opposition and suffering. And on the face of it, it doesn't really make sense. I mean, this is the king of glory we're talking about here. The guy who owns a cattle on a thousand hills. And we would think that a little slice of that glory would trickle down to his servants and the people who love him. But it doesn't always work out in exactly the way that we would think. Well, one example from the Bible of someone who was caught off guard by suffering was Elijah. You read about it earlier. Well, Elijah did and said some hard things on behalf of the Lord. He confronted sinful people and the leadership of Israel. And at first, seems that things seemed to be going really well for Elijah in his prophecy ministry. God proved himself greater than the false god Baal. People around in Israel stopped worshiping the false god Baal. And there seemed to be winds of revival throughout Israel. Elijah was doing well. But opposition remained. And King Ahab and his wife Jezebel both still hated the Lord and still hated Elijah. And even threatened to take his life. We read about Elijah's response to that earlier, and Elijah just couldn't really process that. He expects that trickle-down effect to come to him. So he ran away, he cried, and kind of pouted, saying essentially, Lord, you might as well take my life, because apparently you don't care about how sinful your people are, and you don't want to use me to help the situation. But the Lord was gracious to meet Elijah in his pity party, as reasonable as that pity party might be. He assured Elijah that he hadn't lost control of the situation. And he even showed Elijah that things weren't as bad as he thought that they were. Because God, unknown to Elijah, had saved for himself people who had not yet bowed the knee to Baal. He had saved for himself a remnant. Well, you might, exp uh, you might say, well, I'm not, I I'm not, I've been around the block enough to know that suffering is inevitable. Uh, so what gives? Well, I think, friends, none of us are naive enough to say that God always keeps us from trials. Just how, what our experience is, just too much evidence to the contrary. 
But like Elijah, in serving God, we don't necessarily expect bad things to happen. We don't necessarily expect opposition and rejection. And we prove we don't expect them when we panic when they come. So throughout Jesus' life, there are plenty of bad things that happen. And on the face of it, it doesn't quite make sense. This is supposed to be the Son of God, after all. The Son of God in the flesh coming to earth. Why wouldn't everybody love him? Well, like we saw last week, when Jesus went back to his hometown of Nazareth, and he's rejected there. While rejecting him is tragic and inexcusable, it doesn't mean that God had lost control of the situation. In fact, rejection is a part of God's plan that led to the Son accomplishing the mission he came for, accomplishing the mission of dying for his people. So what we see today as we continue in Mark 6 is that if rejection is a part of the Father's plan for his Son, it's also a part of the Father's plan for those who follow his Son. So here we will see not how Jesus helps us escape opposition, but how we can come to expect it and how we don't have to despair because of it. And even as suffering and opposition come, the Lord is able to empower and strengthen us to be faithful through it. So we read of two different examples of that, continuing in Mark chapter 6, the second part of verse 6. You'll find that on page 841. If you're looking at a Bible, it looks like this, the pew rack in front of you. 841. Mark 6, picking up in the second part of verse 6. And, and he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they also went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it. For Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, 
ask, for me, ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in and immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to the mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. We picked back up in Mark's gospel last week, reminding ourselves of Mark's purpose, showing the identity of Jesus, primarily through Jesus' actions, what he does, and his purpose of showing what it means to be a disciple or follower of Jesus. Like we said, we just got done seeing Jesus' hometown of Nazareth reject him, Nazareth is 25 miles away from the Sea of Galilee, the region where Jesus spent most of his three-year public ministry. And today we begin another broader section of Mark where Jesus goes to Galilee for a third time. And this time, there's an increased emphasis on Jesus sending out his disciples to continue his mission. But we still see more and more, even in this section, that Jesus is the Son of God. See more clearly his identity. Well, for this portion in front of us today, as followers of Jesus, we remind ourselves that the one we follow did not experience victory without enduring opposition. Further, Jesus promised those who follow him will continue in the pattern he set. So here in Mark 6, we get two case studies Two case studies, one from those who would continue Jesus' ministry, another from the one who went before Jesus' ministry. Two case studies of faithfulness amidst opposition, of following the Lord while being opposed. So I think that the main point of this passage of Scripture, we can distill it down to this. Following Jesus means we expect opposition. Following Jesus means we expect opposition, but we remain faithful through it. We remain faithful through it. Well, for the rest of our time, we'll consider what that opposition might look like and why it comes, and how we exactly remain faithful through it, the different ways we're called to do, and how, where we find the strength to do that. Well, we'll jump into the first case study, uh, verses 7 to 13. We played this game on Christmas Eve. You see if you're still good, good at it. We'll try our hand at it again. Uh, so fill in the blank. Many hands make... Very good. You guys did well. Um, we see something to that effect. Many hands make light work uh, as we open this section, verses 7 to 13. Was well, not that Jesus needed the help of the disciples to spread the gospel and usher in the kingdom of God. If he had known anything about the disciples, he probably should have done things, uh, done things himself if he wanted it done right. But it's not that Jesus needed their help or skills. Ultimately, as with any of us, Jesus used his weak, bumbling disciples 
to bring sinners into the kingdom of God because using weak instruments only magnifies the strength and glory of the God behind them. Well, as Jesus began another teaching tour in the region of Galilee, he maintains the intention he had for his disciples all along. Serving as a reminder, as one commentator says, that Jesus never intended to be a solo artist. So in chapter 1, we remember, Jesus called the disciples, called them by name. In chapter 3, he designates the disciples for his service. And then after that, he just continues to teach his disciples. But now there's a bit of a shift. Now it's time for further training, a learning by doing, if you will. Here in chapter 6 would be the disciples' trial mission. Kind of like if you're a Jason Borden fan, he's trying out for Operation Treadstone. And he gets asked, are you ready for this program? Although it's not as dark. Um, all right, so what happens in verses 7 to 13? What we want to do first is just kind of break down what's going on and then reflect on its significance for us. So what's going on? In the first couple of verses, verse 7, we see something of Jesus' agenda and his plan of action. Jesus reminds us that teaching his disciples was never an end in itself. His teaching was not just teaching, it was equipping so that he would use them. And we'll reflect on that in a minute. So here's the beginning of that purpose in sending them out. So verse 7, Jesus sent them out. How did he do that? He sent them out two by two and with a delegation of his authority. So sending them two by two would have multiple benefits. They'd have support for one another. They'd have companionship. They'd have well, counsel from one another. They'd have complementary gifts. And in that place and time, it would establish credibility for taking a message. Back in Deuteronomy 19, I have two or three witnesses establish credibility. But Jesus also sent out the disciples, not just with support for one another, but also with his authority, being a true extension of himself. And I think here is something else that sets Jesus apart, that, that set, makes him unique compared to other teachers or rabbis. Even at the beginning, Jesus called his disciples to follow him. Rabbis didn't do that. Rabbis called their disciples to follow Torah as they taught it. Here, Jesus is calling his disciples to follow him, the Lord of the Torah. But now here again, rabbis didn't send out their disciples on their own. But Jesus did. Because Jesus could delegate his authority. And he did that. He gave the disciples his power without even praying for that. He just did it. So, continue to break down what's going on. Verses 8 to 11. So we saw that Jesus sent out the disciples... But what did he send them to do? We get his instructions in verses 8 to 11. He starts off by telling them what to take. You can't say that Jesus isn't practical. Uh, so the picture we get, I was thinking about it, is opposite of uh, my family's minivan going on any kind of trip growing up. We could take a weekend trip, and it's like we are preparing to trek the Sahara Desert. I mean, we got to be prepared in case we end up stranded on all places but I-71. In case we have to live there forever, we will have uh, sandwiches, snacks, and clothes for a lifetime. 
what Jesus tells the disciples to take is kind of the exact opposite of that picture. He's telling them to travel light. Um, and there's an emphasis of taking no more than they need. So we'll get, we'll get into the significance of that in a minute. We'll continue in Jesus' instructions to the, to the disciples. Verse 10, Jesus tells them that they shouldn't spend all their time figuring out where to stay, settle in one place. In verse 11, Jesus prepares the disciples for negative responses and opposition. Jesus tells them that their response to that negative response is actually something that we might find strange because we don't really do. So knowing what it means uh, helps to remember, again, we try to remind ourselves of this often, that this took place in not suburban Ohio and not 21st century America. This took place in first century Palestine. They did not have paved roads or sidewalks. Maybe you grew up in a place like that. But neither did first century Palestine, neither did they wear Nikes on their feet. So that means their feet got dirty. And so after receiving their, this rejection, Jesus tells them to shake the dust off of their feet. And what would this communicate? We look at verse 11 itself. It would communicate it being a testimony against them. They would understand that this action meant by the disciples that what the decision they were making by rejecting them was a wrong decision. Because by rejecting his disciples, by extension, they're rejecting Jesus himself, and they're remaining in their sin. So we see the progression of what's happening so far. Jesus sent the disciples. Jesus gave certain instructions to disciples. And now in verses 12 and 13, the disciples go. We see here that the disciples didn't do anything initiative. What they did actually looked a lot like what Jesus did. They taught. They called to repent. Performed signs accompanying that teaching. Just a little sidebar. Oil was not a means to heal, but seen as a sign of God's blessing. Figured that could be confusing, so I'd mention it. Uh, so, the significance for us. Here, Jesus sends out his disciples into a fallen, sinful world that isn't asking for God. And as opposite of it, it's actually running away from God. And friends, we are in this same world. We are in this same world as the disciples were, as pilgrims on our way home. But also in the same world as ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven and as representatives of our Lord. So here, the Lord's words to his disciples about their mission in the world are not his only words about their mission in the world, but they are some words about it. So what significance do we find for ourselves in his words to his disciples? For us who represent Christ in a world that opposes him, I think we can get six quick takeaways about faithfulness amidst a world that opposes Christ. Six, I promise I'll be quick. Uh, so first one, faithfulness amidst opposition means we go about Jesus' mission even when we're not ready. If you're taking notes, you just write that down. Even when we're not ready. What's the purpose of food? 
that's a general question, isn't it? You have a lot of different answers. I don't know about you, I enjoy food. I enjoy all the different flavors. Not all the different flavors, but most of the flavors. Uh, there's a great variety. That's a gift in itself. But fundamentally, the purpose of food, we think about calories, the things we may try to avoid this time of year. Calorie is actually a unit of energy. We need calories to live. And we need them so much that sometimes we're not just hungry, we are hangry, as they say. Well, even Jesus picks up on the food analogy and says that the word of God is our spiritual food. We need it to live. So Jesus' ministry showed that he practiced what he preached, that he poured into his disciples and taught them the word of God, and he modeled it for them, and he modeled what adhering to God's will looks like. But what happens when all we do is eat? Maybe you know the answer to that all too well. Uh, it's the opposite of what most people want to do this time of year. Well, Jesus' intention for his disciples did not end with them being eaters and consumers. You remember what Jesus told his disciples at the beginning when he called them to follow him? He says, I will make you fishers of men. That's the end that he intends for his disciples. So friends, it's time to start burning some calories to take what we consume and use it to draw closer to God, to serve others, to represent Christ in the world. So like exercising, we might be reluctant or intimidated about getting started. Uh, there's just a thousand reasons to put it off. Uh, but the disciples' trial mission, notice, it came when they still really didn't have it together that they still didn't really give it, that they get it, that they still weren't all the way mature. That's when their trial mission came. That shows us, friends, that it's not that eating, you know, learning uh, spiritually and taking in spiritual food, it's not that eating is unimportant. It's vital. But if we wait to use what we have until we feel like we're absolutely ready, we will never go about the mission that Jesus has for us. And if we wait and all that we do is eat, just like physically, then you will grow stagnant. So the fact that the disciples weren't quite ready at this point reminds us further that the success of their mission could not have depended on their maturity. The success of their mission could not have depended on their ingenuity. No, the success of their mission ultimately depended on the power of Jesus Christ. That's who. So for those of you who might cringe or maybe roll your eyes whenever you hear preachers talk about boldness, maybe remember this point. That the source of it is never ultimately us. It never can be. The source of it is the authority of our Lord. Okay, that's the longest takeaway, I promise. Um, number two, faithfulness amidst a world that opposes Christ. Going about Jesus' mission. We go about Jesus' mission together, together. Taking this from the two-by-two two instruction in verse 7. As with much of the section and with the rest of the Bible, it's often helpful to differentiate between what is descriptive and prescriptive. 
Uh, in other words, to differentiate between what is being described and what is being commanded. So I don't think Jesus necessarily commands us that we should always go about in the world with a buddy system. However, as we uh, observe some, I do think there are principles behind this instruction that the rest of the Bible would support. Here, I think the principle of the two-by-two is that we need one another for all of life and for the mission of being sent out to represent Jesus in the world. So, friends, I think one of the reasons why Christians might find something like sharing their faith so difficult is that they treat it like a solo project when God intends it to be a group project. So, friends, lean on one another for prayer. Lean on one another for their experience that you don't have, for their wisdom that you don't have. And lean on one another for their presence, even, in a simple way. All right, third takeaway. Faithfulness amidst opposition. Go about Jesus' mission in dependence on him. In dependence on him. Jesus' instructions to his disciples in verses 8 and 9 take what would, to take what would keep them dependent on him rather than being distracted by stuff. We have too much stuff, it weighs us down. Think back to college days. I'm late with a paper. I'm late to class. I have to print it out real quick, throw on my backpack, and then run across campus with my backpack on. I don't know if you've ever seen somebody run with a backpack, <laughs> but it's pretty hilarious because you can't really do it. It just keeps like pounding back into your back. So here, in all of life, don't have extra stuff that would weigh you down. Lay aside every weight, as the book of Hebrews says. And not just it weighs us down, it can also fool us and make us think we're self-sufficient. What do I mean by that? Well, friends, what's better? A life where you have all the comforts and conveniences you want or a life where it is undeniable that the only reason you keep going is because of God's power. Like, that's the only possible explanation of that. Well, friends, you might know, you might be reluctant to say what the answer is of what life is better, because the life where it's only possible because of God is a, is a hard one. It takes faith. But friends, even if, you're, if you feel like you're in that kind of state right now, think of how much of a picture of the gospel that is of where we contribute nothing to it, and it is all of God's grace. We are utterly dependent on him. That's the case. So, dependence on Jesus. Four, go about Jesus' mission with urgency. There's time for rest. There's time for playing the long game. But everything about this trip for the disciples, what they packed and how long they stayed, indicated that their call for people to respond to Jesus was urgent. We say it all the time. We are not guaranteed tomorrow. We say that all the time. And I'm not sure if we really believe it. But it could very well be the case that our lives are required of us tonight. So I ask you, are you ready? And Christian, I ask you, are you asking others if they are ready? Number five, go about Jesus' mission with boldness. 
Well, it's fitting that the disciples' extension of Jesus' ministry would have this characteristic, given that last week we saw how Jesus displayed boldness in going to and teaching in the city of Nazareth. It's fitting that his disciples would do the same thing. Verse 12 here says that the disciples went out and called people to repent. That wouldn't be a popular thing to do back then, just like it wouldn't be a popular thing to do today. Repent is one of those words you would use if you're trying to caricature a religious fanatic. That's what religious fanatics use. That's the kind of word they use, repent. But friends, now we're not tossing to the wayside what it means to love, what it means to have discernment, what it means to be winsome. I think there's more uh, that the Bible says on boldness. But here, the call to repent requires boldness. And it would remind us that at some point in our conversations, this topic has to come up. Repentance has to come up. Number six, go about Jesus' mission doing what Jesus did. Doing what Jesus did. So, okay, let's clarify what this doesn't and does mean. This doesn't mean we have unlimited miracle ability. It doesn't mean that you wear your big Columbia coat and somebody can touch it and be healed. I think the pattern we see in Scripture is that to establish the credibility of the gospel message when it wasn't known in an area and before it was written down, to establish the gospel's credibility, God would give signs accompanying that gospel message to make it seem, to to legitimize it. So in the rest of the New Testament, we don't see a call or commission to perform signs and miracles. But we do see a clear call and commission to speak and teach of Christ and follow him. That's even the primary task of Jesus' ministry. Back in Mark 1, Jesus says, I must go to other towns so that I can preach there. That's the main reason he went around different towns, to teach, not to perform signs and wonders. Now, as great as those are, signs and miracles were great, and it's not that God is unable to do them today, but without the explanation of the gospel, they can lose their significance. So what's left for us, friends? It's not overly complicated. Do what Jesus did. It's not to reinvent the wheel. It's not to come up with all the ways we can get people interested in Jesus. It's not to come up with fresh tactics and fads and services to draw crowds and meet felt needs. Not that there's not a place for contextualization or community service. What's left for us simply is to reflect Jesus in this world. We are called to extend Jesus' ministry just like the disciples by teaching what he taught, loving as he loved, obeying as he obeyed, praying as he prayed, serving as he served. That sounds pretty ordinary. Well, you're right. It is. It's not exactly spectacular. But we follow Jesus and get ourselves out of the way and let him do the work. So how are we faithful to follow Jesus and the mission he has for us in the world that often opposes him? Saw certain principles in Jesus sending out his disciples. Principles like being ready, like being together, like being dependent, like being urgent, being bold, and being an imitator of Christ. That's the first case study. The second case study is a little more straightforward. It'll be quicker, I promise. 
The second case study, whatever was left in abstract. In this one, it's made concrete. So we'll do this similarly, how we did the first case study, just notice what's going on and then reflect on its significance. All right, verses 14 to 16. Here we see that Mark sandwiches the story of John the Baptist's fate. So if we started with bread with the disciples, here John the Baptist is the meat of the story, and we're going to come back to the bread with the disciples. So when you take the bite through it, then you can't miss what John experienced. We have to consider what that means for being a disciple of Christ, what John experienced. So what happened to John? Verses 14 to 16, Mark sets up the story. He highlights Herod. Now, if you know your Bible, you know that you have to be more specific when you say Herod. Because there were one of four rulers who were named Herod in the New Testament. This is the second one, Herod Antipas. Herod the Great, Herod's da- Antipas's dad, the one ruling at Jesus' birth, ruled over all of Palestine. And when he died, he left his kingdom to his four sons. And Herod Antipas got the region of Galilee and Perea. Herod Antipas was known as a man who loved luxury. We can see it in this story. We can see it in what he left behind in his different architecture. He was a man who was also shrewd and cunning. Jesus would later call him that fox in Luke 14. Well, by then, it was plain that everyone recognized something of Jesus' greatness. And they thought he was Elijah. Elijah had done many signs. They thought at least he was a prophet, and they were excited because they thought the age of the prophets was over. But for Herod, Herod heard of Jesus. It seems like he heard it because of the disciples' success. He heard of Jesus, and he was troubled. Because he thought Jesus was John the Baptist haunting him. He killed John the Baptist, the one who went before Jesus. So now Jesus arrives on the scene, and Herod thinks, oh no, this is John haunting me. So how, what's the story of Herod and John the Baptist? Well, Mark gives the gist in verses 17 to uh, 20, and then gets into the details of the next paragraph. So we read, Herod divorced his wife, convinced his sister-in-law, Herodias, who is actually also his niece, daughter of one of his half-brothers. He convinced his sister-in-law to divorce his other half-brother, Philip, Herod's dad had 10 wives. We probably really needed Ancestry.com. And so he divorces his wife, marries his sister-in-law, and here comes John, tells Herod Antipas, that's not okay. You can't do that. That is sinful. People don't like hearing that. And Herod's wife, Herodias, did not like hearing that. She had it out for John. But there wasn't an opportunity for her to do anything because her husband actually admired John. If you look at their relationship, it was a little complicated between Herod and John the Baptist. He feared him, and yet he admired him. He threw him in prison, and yet he liked to hear him preach. A little complicated. Well, what actually happens in the story? Next paragraph, verses 21 to 29. That was the gist. What are the details? Well, Herodias finally got her chance to get what she wanted. Herod's birthday came. It's like an episode of the Real Housewives of Galilee gone awry. And 
Herod threw a giant party, invited all of his bigwig friends, and the boys were being boys. Herodias knew her husband, the guy who really wasn't a king, but insisted on being called a king, would be vulnerable in front of his hoity-toity friends. He would want to impress them. So Herodias sent her daughter to the pigs, and the pigs loved it. So here, Herodias' daughter, it's not clear what kind of dance she performed in front of Herod and the boys, but it was enough to prompt Herod to a rash, fervorous action. What do you want? I'll give you anything you want. He's like Jimmy Stewart, writing checks he can't cash. You want the moon, Mary? I'll just throw a lasso around it and pull it down. <laughs> so, this is, his ch- this is her chance, though. Herod offers her half the kingdom. And the kingdom wasn't his to give. Rome wouldn't let him give away an acre of it. But all the noise and revelry halted in an instant when Herodias' daughter came back to Herod and told her his request. And you can imagine the suspenseful nature which she said it. It kind of like saves the juicy part for the very end. She tells him, I want you to give me at once, on a platter, the head of John the Baptist. She had him. No way out. The only way for Herod to save face in front of his bigwigs was to follow through on that demand. And even though he was sorrowful and that he knew he was beaten, he didn't even wrestle with this decision that long. Verse 27 says, Immediately he sent one of his henchmen to kill John the Baptist in prison. And the only decent thing about the whole story, even after Herodias got her way and even after Herod gave in, is that John the Baptist's disciples came and gave John a proper burial, which would have been risky considering what Herod had just done to John the Baptist. And then verse 30 comes. It could easily go with the next section. But the story of John the Baptist is nonetheless an intentional interruption of your normal broadcasting. And it's to make us consider, all right, this is what happened to John right in the middle of Jesus' disciples being sent out. So what must that mean for being a disciple of Jesus, what John went through? Well, like the disciples' missions, there are takeaways for being faithful in a world that opposes Christ. And this is how we'll end. We'll reflect in a couple of different ways, and then we'll close. So like Jesus was in Nazareth, so the disciples were when they went out, and so was John the Baptist before Herod. One thread that runs through all of these, again, friends, is boldness. Boldness is one component of being faithful to Christ in a world that opposes him. And the only reason we keep harping on it is because it keeps on coming up. So for John, faithfulness meant being bold enough not to be partial. So we might ask, Why would John confront Herod about his sin? I mean, it's hard to see what he could have gained from it. Why should John be concerned about Herod's sin anyway? Why should Herod be concerned with God's law? He's a secular leader, after all, not a religious one. John should have left well enough alone and let Herod do his job. Well, John wasn't concerned about what he could gain, unlike Herod. John was more influenced by his fear of the Lord than by fear of others. 
In other words, God shaped John's convictions, not the opinions of men. John didn't excuse Herod's violation of God's word because Herod was a secular leader and didn't care about God's word. No, John was concerned with Herod's sin because sin is sin and wrong is wrong no matter what position you're in. You can't say that John confronted sin to gain notoriety. I mean, look where he ended up. You can't say John confronted sin to show how good he was. I mean, his whole message was about how good Jesus was, not how good he was. His boldness to confront Herod's sin was ultimately out of zeal for God's glory and even for the good of Herod. Good for Herod, both as a leader and as a person. We think about Herod's sinful choices in character were not irrelevant to him being an effective leader. His prideful character, you think what that led him to do. His prideful character led Herod to do anything to protect his reputation. His prideful character led Herod to violate due process and kill an innocent man. His bad character had consequences for the people he represented. But more than that, as a man, John didn't say Herod's sin was um, sin with Herodias because John just liked pointing out that in other people. Because John was a bigot who liked pointing his nose and where it didn't belong and where he wasn't being affected anyway. No, no. Friends, John confronted Herod ultimately out of Herod's good. Because John trusted that this even applies to Herod. That God gives instructions, that God gives his law, not to restrict our lives, but to give us life. And he trusted that the one who made us is the one who knows what is best for us. That applies to Herod, too. So if Herod responded in the way that John would have intended him to, then Herod would have seen that God's law reveals his sin. And when he saw his sin, Herod would have then saw that he needs atonement for his sin. He needs payment for it. He needs to be made at peace with God. And when Herod recognized that, you know what John would have done? John would have pointed him to who he pointed everybody else to. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Herod would have recognized his sin, saw his need for a Savior, and bowed his knee to King Jesus, and not himself. So friend, this morning, don't be like Herod. Herod liked hearing preaching. Herod liked hearing John preach, and he just couldn't consider what it meant for himself. You may like being in church. You may like being with God's people. You may like even hearing God's word preached. But God's word confronts each one of us, and we must consider what it means for ourselves. It's great that you like it, but it confronts you, just like it does me, just like it does anybody else. Well, friends, there's a lot more we could take away from the story about John the Baptist. I feel like I'm not doing it justice. You can see his faithfulness amidst opposition. We could dwell more on his uncompromising character and holiness and obedience that was so distinct that even his nemesis noticed it. Last note, though, I want us to hear. John's faithfulness amidst opposition. The last note. 
That faithfulness amidst opposition means we are willing to suffer even when we're innocent. Willing to suffer even when we're innocent. So you ever noticed this passage is unique in Mark. Remember Mark's purpose? It's supposed to be a spotlight on Jesus. Where's Jesus been this whole time? It's just an extended passage with, without him. He's not the main character. But like a good author, here's Mark foreshadowing. This story is a foreshadow. Whether it was back in the beginning of chapter 6, Jesus' rejection at Nazareth, whether it was the anticipated rejection that his disciples received, and now, most clearly, John, an innocent man who is punished by a ruler, who likes him but capitulates to social pressure, and who is silent when he is accused. Here is a foreshadow of the road that Jesus would walk that would end in his cross. A road where he was reviled but did not revile in return. A road where he suffered but did not threaten. So friends, we might not feel opposition from the world as strongly as the disciples or John or Jesus. We might not feel that. To that we say, thank God for his protection. We might not feel opposition, but to that we say, it might be because we avoid it at all costs. To those in America who are not even willing to give up their music preferences, let alone being willing to give up their lives. We might not feel opposition, so we ask God to keep us from compromise, to keep us from cowardice, to keep us from insulating ourselves from any kind of discomfort or inconvenience. We might not feel opposition. Friends, that doesn't mean others don't. Our brothers and sisters around the world. We might not feel opposition, but that doesn't mean we won't someday. That's what we read earlier. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So when that happens, friends, those who cling to Jesus will cling to him even tighter. And remember that as they are opposed, the world opposed Jesus first. So friends, we've considered a lot of lessons about what it means to be faithful amidst opposition. But there's hope that underlies it all. Hope that underlies the opposition we might receive. We said that this story is a foreshadow. But it's not a perfect one. The story ends at John's tomb. But that's not where the whole story ends. The whole story ends not at John's tomb, but at Jesus' tomb. Friends, which is empty. There we find, underneath all our opposition and suffering, that our Lord's suffering for us ended not in defeat, but in victory. Let's pray. Oh God, we've considered so much here today. And we pray that you would use uh, your word in our hearts and in our lives. That you would give us faith and boldness in you. Even when we consider ourselves weak, even when we consider ourselves just not ready and immature, God, would you strengthen us? Lord, maybe some feel opposition for following Jesus more than others. If they are in a struggle in this moment, would you help them to be faithful? Would you help them to endure and continue? And God, will we cling to Jesus tighter and tighter for the rest of our days until all eternity, remembering that his suffering ended not in defeat, 
but in glory. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.